Podcast One production. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. Heart health seems like something that might happen in the distance, but it's the things that we do now that can help us for our future. And it doesn't have to be boring. Dr. Catherine Itziopoulos has put together a book for the Heart Health Guide, and you can eat and live like an absolute king and queen without having to sacrifice. And that's what Adam and I loved when we found out about her book and why we wanted to get her on the podcast. So in this interview, Adam speaks to her to find out her tips and tricks into A, understanding what causes heart problems in the future, and B, what do we eat to avoid that? And remember, if you want us to hack into someone in particular, email us, healthhackeratthemanshake.com.au, jump onto Adam's Manshake socials, or head to his website, themanshake.com.au, and get in touch with him that way. He's always giving away prize packs too. He loves to hear from you. And the other way, just leave a comment below this podcast. Enjoy this interview with Adam and Dr. Catherine Itziopoulos on how to get your heart as healthy as it can be and still eat like a champ. Thanks very much for joining us today, Doctor. And I must admit that um, the thing I like the most about yourself is that you actually epitomize what you talk about in your books. Your, your Greek heritage is something you're very passionate about. And you also look fantastic as well. I always say to people that, uh, unfortunately, if you go to a doctor and he doesn't look very healthy, find yourself a new doctor. <laughs> <laughs> well, import, it is important to practice what you preach, I guess. So uh, um, I try, I try. <laughs> you try. You're doing a good job. You look fantastic. So can I ask why um, is heart disease the biggest killer in, in Australia at the moment? Well, it's interesting that it continues to be the biggest killer. We have had lots of advances in heart disease care, uh, in saving people who've had heart attacks. So the um, heart disease death rate over the last few decades has gone down, but it still remains as the biggest killer in Australia with almost 50 people a day dying of heart disease. Um, And uh, diet and lifestyle has a big role to play. Uh, And I refer to a very famous study, uh, the InterHeart study published a few years ago now that demonstrated uh, up to 90% of heart disease can be prevented with diet and lifestyle. So, uh, and of course, it, that includes not smoking and being physically active, but with diet, having a, a, a rich plant foods diet and, and less, less processed foods. So, uh, so there's a lot that, you, that, that we can do uh, to prevent this, uh, this number one killer of heart disease. That's a staggering statistic, isn't it? 90% mm. is caused by lifestyle choices, which blows my mind away. And the great thing about the book that you've got in the background, I can see there the Heart Health Guide in particular is the fact there is so many practical recipes as well in both of the books that you have written. Um, and it's about adopting these new behaviours and, and new habits as such in your, in your daily life. But the underpinning, I would argue, the underpinning cause of a lot of disease in society, heart disease included, is inflammation. Can you take a dive into that for us as well? Sure. So um, inflammation is a complex uh, biological process that, um, that, that we need uh, as living beings because what inflammation does is um, it helps us um, fight infection and, uh, and heal uh, from, from wounds. But when we have low-grade inflammation, so that is the inflammatory markers, and we can measure this and we do this in research, um, inflammatory markers are slightly raised but continuously that's continuously insulting our immune system. And ultimately what happens is this low-grade inflammation starts to affect our organs. So it affects our heart, it affects our brain um, and, uh, and other organs in the body and leads to co- uh, coronary heart disease and, uh, and, and potentially Alzheimer's, dementia. So we understand chronic disease these days to be, um, to be initiated by low-grade inflammation. 
and uh, and in research and in clinical practice we can measure this and uh, many studies have shown that diet can mediate or modulate this low-grade inflammation to actually dampen it um, and, uh, and, and in, in turn prevent chronic disease. Uh, this is about early prevention. So low-grade inflammation is not a good thing to have and it happens in the gut as well, uh, but uh, preventing or managing it with diet is, is key. And uh, I won't spoil the secrets of everyone out there because I've read the books, but um, can you explain in your view what is the best style of diet to reduce inflammation and reduce the risk of heart disease? Well, I've spent my, my whole research career on, uh, on studying the Mediterranean diet uh, here in Australia in, in multiple um, populations with lots of collaborators. And um, so what's special about the Mediterranean diet and what, in my opinion, um, gives it that, that uh, best diet title? It, it has been awarded the, the best diet by US News about three or four years in a row, and it's also heritage listed. And what I mean about the heritage listing is not just a diet, it's a way of life. So it does include um, traditional um, eating patterns, the whole of cuisine. It's not just about one single food. It's about slow food. It's about eating together, celebrating, harvesting, um, sustainable uh, production of food, um, plant-based. So all of those elements are are important. Um, But what makes the Mediterranean diet stick out? Uh, And we've compared this diet with um, usual diets, lots of different diets and low-fat diet, which is quite healthy. Uh, But what the Mediterranean diet outperforms a low-fat diet, which is um, another healthy uh, option, because it's more anti-inflammatory. So what makes the Mediterranean diet more anti-inflammatory are components of the diet, including extra virgin olive oil. So that type of oil, which is the predominant fat in the Mediterranean diet, is rich in polyphenols. uh, And these are uh, bioactive nutrients in the the oil and and found in plant foods um, that have anti-inflammatory potential. So they're the ones that target this low-grade inflammation. Um, and also the plethora of, of leafy greens, um, tomatoes, onions, garlic, and herbs and spices. So, uh, so that's, that's what puts the Mediterranean diet ahead of other patterns because of the richness of the, of the different ingredients in combination, not in isolation. Yeah, you've touched upon it really elegantly there that um, you know, what is traditionally known as a Mediterranean diet, specifically the most effective form of that would arguably be the, the Cretan Mediterranean style of diet. Um, can you explain to people the difference between, uh, I suppose, the uh, perceived Mediterranean diet and, and, the, and the, I would want for a better word, the peasant style of Mediterranean diet? Yeah, so the, the Cretan Mediterranean diet um, was put on the scientific map by, um, by American researchers. So physiologist Ansel Keys, many people may have heard of the Seven Countries Study, which started in the 50s. Um, so what was special about the um, cohort um, in the Seven Countries Study from Crete is uh, that this cohort, uh, when they were followed up at 15 years, uh, they had almost no deaths from heart disease compared to other, other cohorts uh, in the study that had um, higher rates of heart, heart disease deaths. Uh, and those from Crete, um, uh, when at their 30-year follow-up, uh, were living uh, well into their 90s. Uh, what was special about the Cretan cohort was their diet was high in fat. In fact, one of the highest fat diets across all the seven countries. But most of the fat, 95% of the fat in their diet uh, was derived from extra virgin olive oil. And it was a plant-based diet. It did include meat um, and, and um, bread, uh, but, um, but olive oil was the standout, extra virgin olive oil. Um, there are many other regions around the Mediterranean that eat similarly or did eat similarly. Um, and we have coined this a post-World War II peasant diet because it was simple. Um, tomatoes, onions, uh, wild greens, Uh, extra virgin olive oil, a little bit of meat once a week, um, uh, nuts, things that they grew and they harvested and they stored for the winter. 
So that simple style of eating uh, was what was most protective for heart disease. Um, and what we, we don't see much of that these days. So what we see as a Mediterranean diet, particularly out in restaurants, uh, um, the reverse, a plethora of meats, you know, the meat platters, and, and they are festive foods. And, and um, Mediterranean people, Greeks, Italians, Spanish, and everyone across the Mediterranean, of course they do love meat and festive foods. Um, but, uh, but in a more traditional style of eating, those foods are consumed at festivals and uh, and less regularly, um, not not every weekend or every couple of days we have a barbecue and and have uh, you know full plat, platters of meat and just a little bit of salad. So it's about the balance. And I would also argue too the importance of the type of fats that um, people are ingesting. Thinking that a high fat diet is the same as consuming a high fat diet that's high, for example, in canola oils and vegetable oils and a lot of these what I would call want for a better word rancid fats that have been man made. So the problem with um, other fats is that uh, particularly when they are embedded in the food supply, they're highly processed. And what we know about um, fats and oils or any any food component, once it's highly processed and heat treated, um, uh, the components start to break down. So oils do become rancid. They um, they become oxidised uh, over time, but um, they, they also break down through the cooking process. Um, a lot of people ask the question about... Um, extra virgin olive oil and being able to cook with it. And, um, and there's a very eloquent study that was done here in Australia uh, where they compared 10 different oils, and, and that included the popular oils, um, uh, canola oil and other seed oils and um, coconut oil and extra virgin olive oil and your pure olive oil. Um, so they heated these oils up to 240 degrees, which is pretty hot. That's frying temperatures. And then, uh, and then kept the temperature high at about 180 for six hours, so prolonged heating. And what they found was um, extra virgin olive oil outperformed um, nearly all of the other oils, uh, pretty much all of the other oils, in that it didn't break down, it didn't become oxidised as as quickly as the other oils, um, so it was less rancid, uh, and and there was less production of polar compounds. So a lot of people think it's it's the smoke that that appears. It's not that that is uh, harmful, it's polar compounds that we can't measure. This was measured in the laboratory and olive oil was very safe, extremely safe. It, it outperformed all the other oils. Um, coconut oil was also um, quite robust in the, in the frying. But what coconut oil doesn't have, that extra virgin olive oil does have, are the polyphenols, those anti-inflammatory nutrients, which are important in, um, one, preventing the oil from, from um, becoming rancid, because that's what antioxidants do. They protect the food. The food that we eat has antioxidants, not for our benefit, for the for the plant's benefit, to protect the plant from from becoming um, oxidised and rancid. But we get the benefit when we eat that food uh, because we're eating all those uh, rich antioxidants and anti-inflammatory um, components. So, um, in summary, extra virgin olive oil behaves really well with high temperature cooking, um, and uh, and it also is rich in um, uh, plant bioactives, these polyphenols, which the other oils don't have. And how would you go about selecting a good virgin olive oil? Because there is a, a big, uh, as you're aware, big uh, news story was the fact that they say that a lot of the crime organisations throughout the world are actually making as much money out of counterfeit food, particularly olive oil and, and different types of things. How would you go about making sure you're selecting an olive oil rather than a vegetable oil that you think is olive oil? Absolutely. And, and I guess uh, there, there are sophisticated techniques now to detect <laughs> food fraud. And, uh, and that is about DNA testing of uh, you can actually do that and you can identify the source 
of where the product was grown. So that's fascinating science, and I'm very interested to hear more about that. But but in terms of shopping and uh, um, for for a a good olive oil, firstly, um, it needs to be an extra virgin olive oil uh, because pure olive oil is um, is a, a chemically processed uh, oil. And, uh, and when you see it before it has a, a touch of extra virgin added for color, it's clear, which means it's been, all of the good uh, polyphenols have been extracted. So when you see pure olive oil, it's okay for frying if you're going to do that every once in a while, but you're not gonna get those polyphenols. So it has to be an extra virgin olive oil. Um, I use locally produced because of freshness. Um, and olive oil does, does, does keep for a year, up to two if you keep it in a, a cool place uh, um, in the dark because these active bionutrients will degrade with heat and light. So we need to protect that oil uh, from, from spoiling. Uh, so we keep it in a nice cool place, dark place. Um, uh, fresh is best, uh, so locally produced uh, extra virgin olive oil. And then, and then there are different flavours. So within the extra olive oil range, we have Robusta, uh, which is the really powerful one and, and uh, lots of flavor and you get that peppery um, sensation in the back of your throat. Um, and, that, and that is oleocanthal, uh, which is, which is um, a particular polyphenol that has anti-inflammatory um, properties like ibuprofen, like Nurofen. Mm. Um, so it's not as powerful as Nurofen, of course, but it does provide um, some anti-inflammatory effects, and that's what we're we're tasting and feeling. So I really enjoy that. So I, I use that type of oil uh, in all of my cooking. But there are lighter varieties because some are particularly fish, or if you if you're baking a cake, a healthy cake with nuts and dried fruit, um, and olive oil and citrus. Um, so if you if you're baking a cake or making some biscuits, uh, you can use a lighter flavored. Um, extra virgin olive oil it behaves really well and it doesn't overpower the taste of the food so um, taste is usually the best and when you get to know olive oils you will taste a pure olive oil that's that's not so fresh uh, slightly rancid mm -hmm. because it'll feel very oily and slip you know it just gives you a very unfavorable mouthfeel whereas um, uh, extra virgin olive oil tastes fresh you really you know the taste is really nice you can have it with a dip of bread or um, so you will enjoy the flavour. You, 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 you taste a lot of flavour. A little bit like wine, in fact. Mm. There's so many notes in olive oil. It's the science to it, of course. Yeah, and um, cold-pressed, does that make a difference as well? Well, that's interesting for labelling because um, uh, cold-pressed traditionally means that I've taken my olives to the local mill and, uh, and, and, and my olive oil is produced from a, an ancient mill that uses stone uh, grinding. Uh, most mass production doesn't do that. We can't produce enough olive oil using uh, that method. So cold press is not strictly true because what happens with the, the um, um, uh, production of olive oil in a minimally processed way, which is what extra virgin olive oil um, uh, um, is how it's produced, is, um, is, is there is a um, slight mechanical, um, uh, um, the olives are crushed, and then there's, they're mixed uh, in a malaxa and, uh, and, and uh, with water, which helps extract the oil uh, at low temperatures, below 30 degrees. So what that does is protects the polyphenols, um, but it, it optimises extraction of that extra virgin olive oil. So that's the process that is the gold standard that we're using here in Australia. So there is the crushing 
There is the mixing, which is called malaxing. There is that warm water that helps that, um, to extract the um, extra virgin olive oil, but there is no chemical extraction. Um, so we can't strictly call that cold pressed unless we know someone who's got a, a mill that is literally not using any temperature at all and just crushing the olives. If you crush olives between stones, you'll get olive oil because yeah. it actually is the juice. And olives are 95% oil. So, you, you know, you will get, uh, you will get oil by, by that um, cold press. So, so it is, you've got to be careful about this labelling. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? The labelling and yeah, the, the halo terms they use to confuse us. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So extra virgin olive oil, uh, you know, Australian made, imported, of course. My early studies all used imported oils from Crete, in fact. Um, but 20 years ago, we didn't have good quality olive oil in Australia. Now we do. Um, so, um, and, and there are lots of small producers, uh, as well, producing, um, excellent oils. So have a go. Have a Give go. A- yeah. Or do what my Greek friends do. Make sure you pull out the, uh, the steel canister from underneath the uh, kitchen sink, um, rather yes. than go to glass bottles. They always get the big aluminium, um, bottles. The big tins. Big tins. That's right. right. Well, and, and it's more affordable that way. So when you look at price per kilo, uh, it, it will be, um, significantly less when you're buying olive oil in, in a three or four litre can. What that means, though, is you're going to use olive oil for all your cooking. Yeah, fantastic. And um, there's a lot of confusion in health, as we know, and, and particularly the, the star rating system. Is it confusing to you as well? I get a lot of people ask me, why has olive oil got such a poor star rating when it's so good for us? Yeah, it's interesting. The health star rating is a um, – it has very good intentions. Mm. Uh, and the health star rating is designed to, uh, to help the consumer choose a, a processed product from the supermarket – that has a better nutritional profile. So the nutritional profile is determined uh, according to salt levels, sugar levels, fat levels, saturated fat in particular, animal fat, um, total energy. Uh, those are the, uh, the general uh, parameters. And then the product will get, uh, will get a zero star up to five stars depending on, on how well it performs against those um, parameters. But naturally occurring foods don't have health star labels on them. Um, and, uh, and, and they don't often have health star ratings. So the reason uh, extra virgin olive oil, which is a real shame, uh, has a star less than some of the other oils on the market is because extra virgin olive oil or any olive oil has a percentage of saturated fat in it. Um, so, you know, saturated fat is associated with animal fats. This is not animal fat, but it is saturated. So it doesn't quite hit the mark for five stars, but it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's an olive oil. It's an oil that has outperformed all the other oils in, in research over decades and decades. And it's, and it's a, an oil, uh, and now I'm comparing it to some of the newer oils, that have, like canola, which has only been around for, you know, three, four, five decades. Uh, olive oil's been around 5,000 years. So mm. we have to think about the longevity of a product in the human food supply and the fact that what are we measuring? I mean, we're measuring um, against a tool that is not designed to determine the quality of, of, of oils. Processed foods, yes. If we want a biscuit, go for the five five star biscuits. Uh, if we want an olive oil, we're gonna. Uh, we, if we want an oil, then we've got to think think differently. The five the five star rating does not help. Doesn't even help yogurt. So Greek yogurt, uh, natural, unflavored Greek yogurt, has a lower star rating than a highly processed flavoured fruit yoghurt. So, you know, this is where some of the uh, rating systems don't make sense. So I just think, look at the star rating and uh, step back and think logically. Okay, am I going to get the product that's less processed? Um, And, you know, 
have have that or highly processed. Um, so that that's my take on it. Oh, well, that's why I love your work and it's so practical <laughs> and so sensible. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. We've ticked the big box. We know that, uh, you know, a big part of a healthy diet, eating a true Greek diet, a Mediterranean-style diet, is making sure we've got our good fats, olive oils, our nuts. Um, uh, the next big tick, you, you touched upon it earlier, but is taking care of our gut and the importance of gut health with inflammation in particular, our microbiome, which people that uh, follow us understand we love this, uh, this area. Can you just um, expand on some of the pre- and probiotic foods? Sure. Nowadays, we understand that chronic disease is caused by low-grade inflammation, and particularly from the gut, and particularly from the imbalance of microbiome. So what does a Mediterranean diet do? All of the um, uh, fermentable carbohydrates, the FODMAPs, um, are rich in a Mediterranean diet, and uh, and they feed the friendly bacteria. So they are prebiotic, and that will be your um, whole grain bread, sourdough in particular, um, and uh, the, the uh, uh, root vegetables, even some of the uh, leafy vegetables, um, legumes in particular, very rich in prebiotics and, mm-hmm. and star- so starchy or carbohydrates that are not fully digested in the stomach and the small bowel in the, and, and they go to the large bowel. That's what a prebiotic is. Um, Mediterranean diet rich in, in these types of um, uh, non-digestible carbohydrates. And then we go to probiotics. So probiotics are, are fermented foods found in many cuisines, but in the Greek diet, uh, yogurt is, is the classic mm-hmm. example. And, uh, and in a healthy Mediterranean diet, uh, two or three tablespoons of yogurt is, is like a daily dose of what you, what you need to have. Choose a yogurt that uh, on the packet says there are live bacteria in this yogurt. Mm. It has to have live bacteria. When yogurt's made and, and milk is pasteurized, the bacteria is, is, is destroyed. Um, live bacteria is, does survive in some of um, the methods of, of making yogurt in the better types of yogurt. Um, and in some yogurts, uh, bacteria is added back to the yogurt. So make sure there's live live bacteria, minimally processed, minimally things added. There's no need to have yogurts that have got all the extra flavours added, just plain, and uh, and then we add what we want. So we add fresh berries. We can add a drizzle of honey. It's okay. And nuts. Uh, we we add the flavours. Uh, we're in control of what we're eating. That's that's one of the key things. Um, olives. Uh, are fermented, so so they they have pro- probiotics as well, and and cheeses, uh, many of the cheeses, different cheeses too. Uh, a lot of Greeks eat goat cheese. Do you want to expand on the difference between goat cheese and some of the other forms of cheese? Yeah, so goat cheese uh, is uh, fermented, um, and it's it's I guess um, in terms of research, goat cheese versus uh, cow's milk or sheep's milk, she- sheep's milk and goat's milk uh, cheese um, and yogurt, in fact. Uh, uh, is more traditional, particularly in these smaller villages uh, that we've studied through the years, uh, because they didn't have cows. I mean, cows are large animals and they need lots of pasture, um, whereas um, uh, sheep, lamb, goats in particular, and when we're talking about um, areas like the Blue Zones, Ikaria, uh, an island uh, which I visited a few times, very lucky to, to have been there, uh, goats roam free, you know, they're on the mountains, and, and in Crete, Krikri, you know, they're f- full of mountains, go. So, uh, so uh, goat milk and goat cheese is is um, is more traditional. Um, when animals roam free, their meat and their milk is going to be richer in uh, in a omega three fatty acids because goats eat um, eat a, a, a wide diet. Uh, they they eat anything, but they also eat woody plants, and woody plants 
are um, some of the um, uh, woody plants that we would use in our cuisine, uh, rosemary, for example, and thyme, uh, rich in oils. And, um, and, and, and these uh, oils, which contain omega-3s, are consumed by, by goats, uh, goes into their milk, goes into their flesh, and we're eating um, meats that are marinated on the bone. That's a term uh, a, a professor, a mentor of mine, Professor Kieran O'Day, came up with my, that term, not, not I. Um, so so that, that, that's what I understand to be beneficial uh, in terms of goat meat and, and goat uh, cheese or yogurt. Um, it does have a different flavour. Some people find it very strong. Sheep's milk and, and cow's milk is milder. Uh, but traditionally feta is more sheep's milk or goat's milk uh, and yogurt um, either. But because of bulk supply, cow's milk is being used more, more often uh, these days. Well, I often say you are not just what you eat, but you are what they eat. So... You are what they eat, exactly. And the, and the same with, with, with fish um, and, and obtaining uh, a high percentage of long-chain omega-3s for our brain. We know uh, omega-3s are important for inflammation, um, for joints, low-grade inflammation definitely, but for the brain, which is rich in omega-3s. So we eat fish, fish eat um, plankton and seaweed, which is where the omega-3s come from. We can eat seaweed, so we can eat it directly, or we can eat the fish that eat the seaweed. Um, so that's the best way to get long-chain omega-3s. One or the other. One or the other. Yeah, a lot of people um, don't understand the best types of fish, but the Mediterranean style of fish are obviously them small fatty fishes. Small fatty fish, uh, small fin fish, because they're more abundant and um, and more economical. And if you if you go to Greece these days, uh, and fish is very expensive across the Mediterranean because of the um, excess fishing of of, of fish, um, and there, there's a lot of um, aqua farming now, which is fantastic. Uh, but the small fin fish like pilchards and sardines are very rich in omega-3s, more so than any other fish. And then there's mackerel, of course. Um, now, when we go further north in, into Europe, there's salmon. Salmon is readily available to us here in Australia. Uh, I've used it in the book and I, and I eat it often because it's rich in omega-3s. Farmed salmon is not as rich as wild salmon, but it's more available. Uh, and um, so, so you, can, you can mix it up. But uh, traditionally, small fin fish, sardines, fresh, uh, filleted or, or whole, uh, in the oven, uh, lots of fresh tomato, garlic, lots of parsley, liberally uh, doused with uh, extra virgin olive oil, and you bake that for 20 minutes, and it's an amazing dish. Well, that's why people got to buy your book, because I've tried that sardines recipe, and I absolutely <laughs> love you? it. Okay. Yeah, so I love sardines. My wife doesn't particularly like the smell, but once I add them ingredients that you suggest, she doesn't mind it. So, And what was alarming to me reading your research as well was um, another health um, trend at the moment that's really popular is obviously brain health. And uh, women in particular are suffering more deaths as a result of dementia and Alzheimer's disease than anything else. Um, why do you think women are more discriminated against, firstly, with these particular brain illnesses? Um, and what are some of the things we can do with the Mediterranean diet to starve this off? The, um, the statistic around w women having more, um, more deaths from d dementia may be, may be um, uh, associated with the fact that uh, they are at lower risk of coronary heart disease, which is higher in men. So it may, it may be that balance. I, I, I'm not aware of, of uh, literature that says that women in particular are predisposed to, to dementia. Now, there are um, particular genetic markers uh, which may be more common in, in women. Uh, I'm not familiar with, with that research because some uh, forms of dementia, like Alzheimer's, do have a strong genetic link. 
so uh, what do we do if we are um, at high risk of dementia? Uh, what a Mediterranean diet has, has been shown to do is to reduce the risk of dementia. And there is a, a study, um, a fairly large study that, that's been published recently from Greece called the Heliad study, uh, which studied about 1,800 elderly men and women. Um, and they examined adherence to a Mediterranean diet and risk of dementia. So the average age of these men and women were in their in 70s, I think low 70s, and, um, and, uh, and they were uh, evaluated for adherence to a Mediterranean diet against dementia risk. So for every point increase adherence of a Mediterranean diet in a score of one to nine, if we imagine there's about nine food groups in, in a traditional Mediterranean diet, uh, for every one score um, increase, there was a 10% reduction in dementia risk. Um, so, so that was quite, quite significant. And what they found in this study um, as well was that those that adhered more to a Mediterranean diet performed better in memory tests and in a whole battery of cognitive tests. So, um, so the Mediterranean diet was associated with better brain function and reduced risk of dementia. There are multiple meta-analyses and systematic reviews, which is a summation of all the research um, that, that's available at the time of the analysis, demonstrating a reduction in dementia risk with Mediterranean diet adherence. Why do we believe the Mediterranean diet is healthy uh, for, for a healthy brain? That is because of, uh, of the nutrients that are rich in a Mediterranean diet that we know are important for the brain. First and foremost, the richness in long chain omega-3s. Uh, the, the brain is, uh, is uh, composed of lipid, most of it is uh, EPA and DHA, which is the long chain um, fatty acids, uh, which we obtain from the diet from fish or seaweed. Um, we, as we age, uh, DHA in particular starts to drop the concentration. And this has been uh, demonstrated in, in studies. So uh, our, our hypothesis then is that we need to replenish the long chain omega-3s, uh, particularly uh, with aging. Um, omega-3s are important in brain development as well. And this is why we, uh, we focus on lots of omega-3s for children. Um, so at the other end of the age scale, uh, omega-3s, uh, which are rich in the Mediterranean diet from the fin fish that we mentioned, and lots of other sources, uh, free roaming meat will have more omega-3, as I mentioned, like the goats that, uh, in, in Crete that climb up on the mountains and eat rosemary and thyme. Um, and then we have um, other nutrients important for the brain, like folate. So folate's rich in citrus foods, leafy greens. Um, it's an abundant uh, nutrient. And a Mediterranean diet, the one that we've, um, designed and studied here in Australia based on the Cretan has got double the folate intake compared to the Australian diet. So it is very rich in folate, um, but it's also rich in these um, uh, polyphenols from extra virgin olive oil and other nutrients, which have anti-inflammatory potential. So what the brain, like the gut uh, and, and coronary arteries, does suffer from low-grade inflammation. So if we provide nutrients to the brain, that, uh, that, that uh, help reduce this low-grade inflammation, uh, we are likely to protect the brain from diseases like dementia. Yeah, fa fascinating, isn't it? Red wine. Do you uh, drink red wine? <laughs> I do. I like white wine as well. And, um, and there is a, a Mediterranean way of drinking, uh, which I've re reflected in, in the 10 principles, and that is um, wine uh, in moderation and uh, always with meals, never, never without food. Um, and uh, in moderation, one to two glasses. Uh, we need to be mindful that alcohol is not for everybody. Some people have conditions that, um, that are where alcohol is prohibited, so do, do consult your doctor. But if you do drink a glass of wine every now and then, 
um, do prefer red. So if I'm having a steak, and occasionally we will, um, uh, so uh, we'll, we'll, you know, uh, uh, I'll have a red wine because it just it it just suits suits the dish. Um, red wine has tenfold the concentration of of uh, polyphenols, um, like the olive oil, different polyphenols, but that's the concept <laughs> um, uh, compared to white wine. So white wine does have some, uh, red wine has tenfold. Um, uh, this is why we believe wine uh, might be protective for cardiovascular disease. The evidence is for cardiovascular disease, uh, exclusively, I, I would say, in all my reading. Um, so, and, so we believe it is the polyphenols, resveratrol is one, uh, one important polyphenol in red wine uh, that is um, uh, that may be protective uh, for um, for coronary heart disease in moderation. So there is a curve, and if we have more than one or two, uh, then we start to affect other organs like our liver and our brain. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Science isn't always about uh, causation; it's about correlation. And, and when we we expand on that concept, the fact that um, just the setting also when people enjoy wine may also be having some correlation to health benefits as well. So the community, you touched upon it earlier, but the Greek way of life, can you expand on some of the lifestyle factors outside of diet that really contribute to good health? Sure. And, uh, and it's something that we've studied here in Australia. And uh, and one of my PhD graduates, Andonia Thodis, who published her PhD just a couple of years ago, um, has published a couple of concepts. And one is, um, and she's reflected in the book as well, homegrown health. So a key factor that enables um, adherence to this type of lifestyle is to um, tend to a garden. Now, uh, a lot of people love to tend to a garden and, and flowers are important, of course, because it gets us out there gardening. But growing your own vegetables has a, a special quality uh, because you, you're growing something. Uh, the flavour will be great because it's, uh, it's ripened on the vine or in the soil. And, uh, and if you're growing abundant uh, quantities, you share that. So growing your own food, eating your own food that you grow um, and, uh, and sharing it is, is an important part of the Mediterranean way of life. And um, the Mediterranean diet um, was, uh, it was heritage listed for all of these factors. And what we see and what uh, Tanya um, demonstrated here in Australia was those that were doing more of this um, uh, uh, homegrown health uh, were, had uh, you know, better, better cardiovascular risk factors. So, you know, slightly better blood pressure or, or um, better outlook on life. I mean, other factors are connect, um, connectedness to the community, mm. attending clubs, um, the number of visitors you have in your home. That's a challenge these days because of what we've experienced through COVID. So no doubt um, this uh, isolation is affecting all of us, uh, our health and well-being. But um, the Mediterranean way of life is that connectedness. And there are studies not only from uh, from Greece, but um, across from South America and and all and also Spain, showing that the number of visitors you have in your home uh, is associated with happiness, which in turn is associated with psychological health and well-being. So, connectedness with with a community, um, uh, and and when we link that with food, it's about eating together. Now, what eating together does is you're sharing um, your experiences. You're eating slowly. You're conversing. You're not wolfing your food down. Because what happens um, with satiety, because we eat until we're full and then we keep eating often, is uh, you, you, you eat quickly and your, your, your brain doesn't register that you're full. But when you're uh, eating with people, you've got to talk. So you can't be just munching all the time. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, so you're going to eat slowly. Uh, you, you, you'll reach satiety at, at, at the right point. Um, you're talking. All of those factors are very important. 
Um, so e- eating, in group, eating away from devices, eating away from the TV. Um, so how can we incorporate this into our everyday life? Uh, make sure the table is away from distractions so that the family can talk to each other. That connectedness, very important. Being connected with your food and with other people brings mindfulness to the yeah, moment. Yeah, it does, yeah. And that mindful eating, um, you know, think about... There's another term that I often use and that's uh, in Greek is tostomachi then in apotheki, which is your stomach is not a garbage disposal unit. Because what we often feel is that, oh, there's food left over, I have to eat it, I don't want to waste it. Well, food wastage is a problem for sustainability, so... You know, if you're going to overcook, make sure you store it to eat it another day. Um, you don't have to eat it so you're not wasting it um, because you have to think about what you're feeding your brain. So maybe that's a way for us to connect in um, uh, that, it, you know, I'm feeding my brain and if I eat, uh, overeat or if I'm not eating the right things, it's going to affect my brain health um, or my heart health, whatever is most precious. Well, all of those things are precious to us, but, but, um, but mindfulness is very important. Think about what you're eating. Think about what's in your food. And I noticed in these places, what we call blue zones, um, such as some of those Greek islands and whatnot, where they eat a Mediterranean diet, there's not just also the diet factors, but the connectedness and there's no gyms. You notice in these places when you go, there's no 24 seven hour gyms, (laughs) um, no buffed looking, uh, bodybuilders walking around. Um, their main form of exercise is just movement, isn't it? Can you expand on some of the things they do around mealtimes while they move after meals and, and whatnot as well? They do. That's right. Uh, so I have been to Ikaria a few times and I've completed an anthropological study there and interviewed very old, old people. Wow. Uh, the oldest woman, um, and this was four years ago now, uh, was Maria and she was 106. So, and she's still, still with us. Um, and, uh, and it was uh, amazing. I mean, the island, um, and uh, the, there's uh, one in Italy called Sardinia. Uh, they're very mountainous. And what I found about Icaria is uh, it's a beautiful island um, and, and if you're adventurous, you must go and visit because there aren't many roads. You have to walk everywhere or you, you drive and then the road stops and then there's a cliff. Um, so uh, these very old, old people walk everywhere. They would walk three or four or five kilometres a day and they're strong. So they, of course, they're not buffed, but they're strong. So they're walking in mountainous country and, uh, and they are producing their own food. There was one gentleman, he, he was 90, you know, up straight. And I said, don't you have osteoporosis? <laughs> you know, he goes, I'm a beekeeper. And, uh, and he had, oh, I, I can't remember the number. It was a huge number of um, beehives. And he said, every six weeks I move them to another uh, and I physically do that. So he physically at the age of 90 is moving <laughs> moving the beehives so the bees are, uh, are feeding off different flora um, and, he, and he eats, you know, two tablespoons of his own honey every morning and, uh, and he said, oh, the bees sting me and that's important for, for inflammation, for, for reducing <laughs> inflammation. So, it, you know, there could be something in that. But, um, but growing your own food, walking everywhere and festivals. Ikaria has 100 festivals a year. Wow. and And, and um, there's about 8,000 people on the island. Uh, we went to one of the festivals there were 2,000 people there and everyone brought, brought their produce. <laughs> so, and they don't stress. I asked them, what's your secret to longevity? Uh, we don't stress. We're very positive, positive outlook on life. The, um, the, the woman that was 106, 105 uh, was singing. Um, she was still, um, you know, making, uh, you know, working, making things. Um, so very happy, very social, uh, uh, very active, uh, homegrown. You know, very, um, 
almost xenophobic in a way. We only grow eat what's what's on the island, <laughs> uh, and they're lucky that they have so much produce. Um, but the final thing was purpose. Having purpose in life, what you do has to have purpose. I mean, we can all, you know, take 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 that home. Um, so, um, so very very interesting um, uh, place to visit. I, I think you need to expand on that. I think home. people appreciate just the importance of purpose. It's so important, isn't it? And, and it's not about yourself; it's about helping others and and leaving a legacy. Leaving a legacy, helping others, absolutely. Mm. Which your work is doing in bucket loads, and I encourage <laughs> everybody who's listening to, this to go out and buy your books if you want to actually eat healthy and actually have food that tastes great for you. It's an amazing uh, compilation of work that you've put to society. So thank you so much for that. I'd just like to leave with um, a couple of quick questions. You've been around uh, for a long time now in, in this space. Um, what are some of the biggest myths around, I suppose, different diets and, and superfoods such as cholesterol would probably be a good one to start with? Um, you know, we've been very fat phobic in our approach to health. Would you say fat phobia and, and cholesterol? Could you expand on cholesterol for people out there with heart health? Sure. Uh, and... I guess uh, cholesterol-containing foods. Um, uh, there, there was there was there was a belief that they were the main cause of coronary heart disease, and uh, the simplistic view of of uh, coronary heart disease or atherosclerosis, which is the um, uh, the buildup of, of fat deposits in the artery, was that we eat foods that contain cholesterol, and some of these foods are very healthy, like eggs and uh, shellfish. Uh, we eat these foods and uh, the cholesterol in these foods enters our bloodstream, builds up on our arteries, um, uh, they, they, they block, we get a heart attack and, uh, and, that, and that increases our risk of death. Um, but what we know nowadays is um, it's not the cholesterol in those foods uh, that, uh, that causes atherosclerosis. A high-fat diet is associated with heart disease, but it's low-grade inflammation that causes the damage in the first place. And the build-up of fats um, in, in uh, the artery wall uh, does include cholesterol, but it's an oxidised cholesterol, but that's manufactured internally as well in our liver. So, um, so cholesterol-containing foods do not directly correlate to heart disease. It's a poor diet overall uh, and highly saturated fats, highly processed saturated fats, um, ex- do predispose to heart disease. So yes, you can have eggs. Um, seven eggs a week are fine. You know, there are some people that are a bit more sensitive and uh, there is, a, there is a, a condition called familial hyperlipidemia. That's a genetically inherited high cholesterol. Your diet's perfect. Your cholesterol's still high. You may be sensitive to cholesterol and your doctor will be able to advise you. You may need medications and you may not be able to control that with diet alone. So if you have familial hypercholesterolemia, yes. But for the rest of us, um, uh, cholesterol foods are not the culprit. It's a combination of a highly processed, high-fat diet, uh, which includes predominantly animal fats and and, uh, not enough uh, healthy oils. Yeah, and sugar is a big uh, contributor to, to that as well. Sugar is a major problem, and uh, and sugar's had um, it's been on and off in terms of its interest. Uh, but um, highly processed sugars, so people are concerned about sugars in fresh fruit, uh, and 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 they shouldn't be. I mean, sh- fruits do have uh, uh, naturally containing sugars, fructose and and uh, and and glucose. Um, but um, but they are packaged in a fruit with lots of fibre and lots of antioxidants like vitamin C. So eating fruit whole is great because uh, you're 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 getting um, a, a you're getting fiber, uh, vitamin C, and other um, uh, carotenoids. Um, cryptoxanthin is is one of them, uh, which has antioxidant potential. 
And if your blueberries, anthocyanins, you know, there's lots of positives about fruit. We don't, we shouldn't really worry about the sugar. But once you um, extract all of the juice from fruit and you drink a big glass of juice, that contains four or five or six pieces of fruit. That's that's too much. That's too much. So we do, we would, we would, um, and particularly if we need to lose a little bit of weight. Um, but added sugars are, are problematic. In fact, there is a, a type of um, uh, um, uh, fat in, in the blood, uh, triglycerides, um, and they predispose to diabetes uh, and, and they're associated with cardiovascular disease, not as much as cholesterol, but they are certainly for diabetes. Dyslipidemia, low protective cholesterol, high triglycerides, uh, which is associated with a highly processed high sugar diet because excess sugar in the diet uh, is converted uh, to a triglyceride by the liver. And we get fatty liver, which is another condition that is silent and, and predisposes us to diabetes. So fatty liver is, is associated with a poor diet, which is excessive in highly processed carbohydrates, which are rich in sugars. So we should watch the sugar. We don't need to add sugar to our diet. There's enough sweetness in fruit, a little bit of honey. Um, don't need to add sugar, not required. Um, we've spoken a lot about the uh, the negative effects of low-grade inflammation on our health. Is there any uh, tests people should go out and get today that can help them see if they're inflamed? So um, CRP is, uh, is, is commonly um, measured now as a battery of tests for cardiovascular disease, and you can go to your GP and ask for a blood test to measure your CRP. Fantastic. And is there any other tests that you recommend uh, people get for their heart health? Yes, absolutely. Blood pressure. You, you should keep an eye on your blood pressure and have that measured by your doctor. Um, your your lipid profile, your blood fats, um, and uh, not just total cholesterol, the whole profile. Because cholesterol is made up of uh, LDL, which is the uh, atherogenic, uh, causing uh, fatty deposits, and HDL, which is the protective one. We do want that mix. Triglycerides is another lipid, which is associated with diabetes, and uh, blood glucose control. I mean, they're, they're the key things um, to measure. And your body weight. Um, waist circumference um, most importantly because uh, when we're looking at the detrimental effects of overweight and obesity it's abdominal fat that is more detrimental so your waist circumference you can measure your waist circumference at home Um, and uh, you're 80 uh, 85 cut off for women and 100 102 cut off for men in centimeters at your belly button that's something we can do but at your doctor's uh, body weight and those other measures we've just mentioned. Fantastic. It's been so informative today. Thank you so much. And as I said, anybody out there that really wants to improve their health, make sure that you take a deeper dive and look at uh, your fantastic books. Thank you so much, Adam. (laughs) Well, that's the episode and we hope you learnt heaps. We know we did. So if you want us to hack into someone in particular for you, let us know. Leave us a comment on the app wherever you're listening to this podcast. Email us directly, healthhackeratthemanshape.com.au or jump onto Adam's socials or on his website, themanshape.com.au. And we'll do our best to get that person on the podcast. Health Hacker was created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Written and presented by Adam McDougall. Produced and presented by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. To listen to more episodes, search Health Hacker Podcast. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.